So we're continuing this morning in our series in the letter of James. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, verses uh, 13 through 18. Stand, if you would, as we hear God's word read. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil as he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we have declared this morning, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We have um, bowed our hearts in prayer and kneeled um, in confession before you. Would we now sit under the authority of your word, recognizing that um, you provide what we lack. We need wisdom. And so we pray, even as James has instructed us, that we would have wisdom to make sense of our world. Above all, Father, we pray that you would shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as myself, that we would see Jesus in him only. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to explain to someone what exactly it is that you do all day? Moms. How's that gone explaining to your husbands exactly the level of crazy that is what you do all day in keeping small children alive? For those of you that have vocations that many people don't understand, it can be challenging to explain what it is exactly that you do. Of course, I get that some too as a pastor. You're like, wow, that must be amazing to get paid all that money to do work one day a week. You stand up and give a talk. What's that, like 30 minutes of prep? It's an hour. It's fine. (laughs) They did not tell us in seminary all the things that would happen when you are a pastor of a church, especially a church that's a smaller church that... Um, you end up wearing a lot of hats. Like one minute you're on the phone with 
someone who is in great crisis and the next minute you're unstopping a toilet that's also in great crisis. (laughs) I actually do hold a record for every church that I've worked for. I have actually been on the roof of that church, willingly been on the roof of that church to fix something. Now, the reality of it is, as I looked at someone just the other day who, when they found out I was a pastor and that I worked full-time as a pastor, I said, what is it that you do? Not, not being, they weren't trying to be rude. They were just asking the question, what is it that you do beyond preparing for sermons? And I think this is the answer that best encapsulates a lot, not all, but a lot of what I and other uh, ministers do. And that is, we are walking alongside of God's people as their shepherds. And if there is one thing that we could describe that journey, we are preparing people for, walking with people during, or trying to make sense after significant trials have come into people's lives. We're preparing them for a trial, walking with them during a trial, or in retrospect, trying to make sense of a trial that has happened in their life. And I see that as a very significant part of what God has called me and Jimmy and others like us to do, is to walk with God's people and equip God's people in such a way so that when life happens, when trials come, we can be prepared. Not that we're going to be prepared for every circumstance. Not that we're going to be prepared for every uh, type of uncertainty the world will throw at us. But so that we can at least have some general basic levels of preparation in our lives. If you look at the way that we pray, for instance... If there is a trial happening, if there is a test, if there is some sort of crisis happening in your life right now, how do we typically verbalize, how do we typically um, ask people in to pray for us? If someone were to ask me, um, what is something in your life that I could pray for right now, here is some of what we might say, we might say, pray for the disease to be healed. We might say, pray for my financial needs to be met. We might say, pray for the people to stop doing the things that they're doing that are injuring me. But see, here's the thing, and this is where James is incredibly pastoral, but he doesn't kind of warm up to you. He just kind of goes and says hard things that need to be said. According to James 1, 13 through 18, those prayers are okay, but those prayers are not actually the most urgent thing that we ought to be praying when trial and temptation enter our lives. Because we would normally think that the chief injury being uh, inflicted uh, by the trial, our foremost concern would be for the trial to stop. Isn't that often how we pray? 
whatever is wrong, we want it to stop. But this is what the Bible says about trials. The Bible says that the trial itself is not the most serious life-threatening factor that we're facing. In fact, the Bible says that the greatest danger to us is not the wrong being done to us, but the wrong that may be done by us. And this, this is where we find ourselves this morning in hearing from James. You see, if one of the chief elements of the call that God has placed on my life is to prepare you for, walk with you during, and try to make sense of trials in your life, then I am doing a great disservice to you if I simply give you a practical list of how to withstand financial hardship or how to make it through illness or how to deal with persecution in your life. Because if the greatest danger is not being what's done, is not, is, being, is not what is done to us, but what might be done by us, then, beloved, we need to hear this morning um, a, a set of principles that would speak directly to what, how do we react when trials come. And let's be clear about this, too. We are not... Um, to, uh, we are not pre-programmed to deal well with trials. And that's what I want to look at first. You see, there is a belief that leads to death that is deep within us. And we see it in James 1, 13 and 14 and 15. There are two things that are happening within us that we, that we bring to the table that automatically predisposes us to handle trials poorly. The first thing is a debilitating doubt. Look at what James says in 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Where God cannot be tempted by, with evil and he himself tempts no one. Why would James need to say that? James needs to say that because we as a people have this deep and indelible mark um, buried way down deep in our hearts that I'm calling a debilitating doubt. This doubt is the same doubt that was expressed um, by the uh, words of the serpent to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? Because in that moment, it now cast a shadow on the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God, that he was good and he was trustworthy and he was for them and he was going to provide for them and he was not going to withhold anything that they needed, nor would he give them anything they didn't need. Did God really say? It was in that moment when doubt crept in and things went haywire. James is 
speaking here about the the nature and the character of God, that God is not one that is going to do things that are contrary to his nature. Whereas our perfect communion that was enjoyed by creation and creator was severed by doubt and distrust, James is now speaking to God's people who are in the midst of facing trials, who are in the midst of facing temptations, and is saying, Don't for a second fall back into the trap where you would believe that God is the one that is somehow to be doubted. Worse still, don't fall into the trap where you would believe that God is setting you up to fail. For those of us in the room who are the card-carrying pessimists, especially when it comes to the things of eternal significance like our faith, we know this story well of waiting for the other shoe to proverbially drop. This sense of God is stringing me along, but at some point is going to yank the rug out from under me. I'm going to fall down on my face and find out it was all for naught. He didn't want me to be happy. He just wanted to teach me a lesson. There's a danger, isn't there? When that level of debilitating doubt gets in our heads, when we all of a sudden feel like we're alone. But it's not just doubt that's a problem here. It's also disordered desire. If you look at verses 14 and 15, James says this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what is doing the luring? What is doing the tempting according to the text? Is it forces from without or is it forces from within? James says it's from within. Now, if there's one thing that um, I want you to remember It is this, it is in our created state before the fall, God gave you and I desires. Those desires are good. Desires for beauty, desire for food, desire for fulfillment, desire for success. Those desires were not bad. Those desires were good. The problem is not desire. The problem is disordered desire. If you could remember one thing, remember this. Our desires are good. They have been disordered by the fall. They are being reordered in Christ until they find their ultimate rest, their ultimate fulfillment in him. Now, this is important. It means that we ought to be suspicious of our desires. Not that they're bad. Not that we should become stoic. Not that we should try and eradicate desire, eradicate passion, eradicate want from our lives. The word that James uses here um, for desire in verse 14 
is one that's very difficult to translate in Greek. It shows up in Paul some, it shows up here in, in James. The best way to understand the Greek literally is to understand it is over-desire. Okay, we render it out in English as evil desire, but, but an over-desire, let me take it, let me try to explain it this way. If you think about what your greatest strengths are as a person, and then think about what your greatest weaknesses are, is it not your strengths being played over to unhealthy extremes? For instance, a strength, I can be persuasive. A weakness, I can be domineering. What is that? It's a strength being taken to an unhealthy extreme, right? A strength, I can be steadfast. A weakness, I can be infuriatingly stubborn, that one I got from my parents. Hi, Mom. Um, she's listening to this recording. She's going to smile at that. The thing about our desires is it's the desire itself that isn't bad. It's when the desire becomes an ultimate desire. It's when the desire becomes uh, an over-desire. It becomes an ultimate desire. And what happens is when we lose, when we doubt God, when we don't believe that God ultimately is for us and for our good, and then we bring into the equation desire that would ultimately be, that would ultimately be satisfied by God, but instead we doubt that God is going to ultimately satisfy our desires, therefore, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, don't we? You see, the problem is not desire, and the problem is not wanting things. The problem is when we don't believe that God is ultimately for us and ultimately going to satisfy us, and then we have desires that are, that are going into overdrive because our desires have been disordered, and they're not finding their north star in Jesus. They're finding their north star in our fallen nature. That, according to James, is a recipe for disaster. And I bet you've experienced this in your life just as I've experienced this in my life. Where a series of unfortunate events leads us to the point where we are doubting God, finding longings unmet in our own life, and then adverse circumstances come. During a very difficult season of my own life, I recognized that a pattern that had shown up in my life was that I was medicating myself with food. It wasn't bad. I was hungry. It was lunchtime. I needed to eat. But I would go drive a little ways to a fast food joint where I'm sure no one would be there where they would recognize me. And I would order more food than I needed to eat because I was sad and it made me feel better. What was going on? There was a distrust in God. Why are you letting 
bad stuff happen to me. There was disordered desire. I like to eat. My love language is salty, salty and fatty. <laughs> and crunchy. Why are you letting bad things happen to me? I'm hungry. I deserve more food than I need to eat because it makes me feel good because you won't make me feel good. See how that goes? We could put any other set of circumstances in there that you want because it follows the same pattern. It's I don't trust God. God's obviously out to get me. And so I'm just going to find good things, make them ultimate things, and grow a little more numb inside. Because you see, here's the thing. The heart of God is always love, a love that is drawing us towards holiness, towards wholeness, towards the likeness of his son. God is not the one that's going to go out there and push you away from him. It's to draw you towards him. This would have been significant, by the way, because James's audience would have been very, very... Um, there would have been a lot of pagan mythology running around that would have said that people are simply just uh, cosmic pawns in, uh, in this grand landscape. And so individual responsibility for people to actually take ownership of their actions, not that they were pushed and not that it was out of their control, but it was them. They made the choice. This would have been a big deal in James's day. It's a big deal for us, too, isn't it? If I'm angry, it's because I was provoked. If I'm gluttonous, it's because I was hungry. If drunk, I was overserved. Make no mistake, more often than not, this is what happens. It's good things being taken to unhealthy ends. Trials are not the cause of our sin. Trials are the occasion for sin to reveal itself. Your trial didn't cause you to sin. Your sin nature caused you to sin and happened to put just enough stress on you at that moment that your normally carefully calculated and well-held-together veneer cracked for a moment. And so this is why last week we, we set the stage by, by looking at what James said about counting it all joy when trials come. Not because we're going to rejoice in a trial, not because we're going to welcome adverse circumstances in our life, but because we know that it is through trials that God is doing good things in our life. We don't rejoice in the trial itself, we rejoice in what the trial will produce. This what we see this week is James saying, but this is what happens if that isn't your orientation. If it's not joy that you are counting when trials come and focusing on asking God for wisdom who gives the good and generous God who gives to all generously without reproach. This then is what happens. 
debilitating doubt and disordered desire take root and hold in our lives, and all of a sudden we make really sad choices. We make them. Because we thought we were in it all by ourselves. Here's the problem with the grievous end of desire uh, without a North Star in Jesus. It is that over time, over time, we find ourselves growing more and more and more numb. Numb to sin. Numb to Jesus. It is a pastoral question to ask if you find your worship um, unmoving, your study in God's word cold. It is a question, though it is not the only question to ask, there is a worthwhile question to ask of is there a, a numbness to sin in your life? James is not mincing words here when he says that then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. When you talk about coldness, when you talk about numbness, those are words that are synonymous with someone who is dead or dying. I think James is making a practical statement here. I don't think that James is necessarily trying to make a statement that we would build a systematic theology on. I believe that um, the way we know that we're saved is because we persevere in the faith. It's not how we start, it's how we finish. And those that fall away are those that probably never had saving faith to begin with. But I don't want us to um, I don't want us to load up systematic categories on a pastoral point. Sin is bad news. It's bad news. It can kill you. It's not stuff to play around with. Some of you I know have read and studied Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. I think it's a really helpful book. Um, especially if you're not much into reading um, uh, Christian books or whatever. It's a good kind of starting place to talk about sins that we would sort of gloss over um, and say uh, these are no big deal. And it helps kind of see um, the reality that it's not just like, well, I haven't murdered anyone today. You know, it's not that. It's actually there's, there's, there's stuff that's eating away at our hearts all the time. And so we have to watch out for these types of things. James is, James is showing us that just as endurance can yield forth the perfect work, look at what he says back in verse 4. And let steadfastness, let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying if, if when, when trials come and you count them all joy, you pray to God for wisdom, and, and God is able to achieve his perfect work in you, that perfect work, that steadfast work is going to be maturity and completeness. Perfection. 
lacking in nothing. If James says, if that's the perfect work there, what we see here is the opposite of the perfect work. If, if endurance can yield forth the perfect work, fully equipping the believer for life, so sin, when it achieves its maturity, yields forth its natural fruit, which is death. This is what we see happening. So if that's the problem, what's our, what's our solution? Well, it's this. If there is a belief deep within us that leads to death, there is also hope because there is a birth that leads to life. Verses 16 through 18. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Um, when he says, do not be deceived, this is in this um, context of, um, of luring and trapping, this being enticed that he says earlier in, uh, in verse uh, 13 and 14, being enticed, it's, it's hunting and fishing language. Um, so I had to look up what that means. I'm not a hunter or fisherman. That was the self-deprecating joke there. It's even less funny when you have to explain it. He's going back to hunting and fishing language again. It's, it's, it's a trap that's set. And he says, don't, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. It's a trap. Get out. So the new game that my, uh, my boys have been playing recently, um, really led by Eli, has been uh, whatever room they're in, they're in there for just a moment. And then they yell, it's a trap. Get out. And then just run across the house. I really think it's an excuse just to run across the house at full speed. I don't think there are traps in my home, but... Stranger things. Um, and would it be for us that we would be able to look at temptation, to look at sin, to look at all these other things and go, this is a trap. I better run. <laughs> it's a trap. Because, see, here's the thing. If we look at verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God is a giver. Temptation is a taker. You think that temptation is going to give you something. It is not. It is going to take something from you. It's a trap. James says every good, every perfect gift comes from above, is from above. Temptation doesn't stop in the moment of taking something from us, it keeps going. It makes us feel as though we are no longer welcome before the throne of God. It's that moment when the prodigal returns home to his father and he says, I've completely screwed it up, so I will, I will sell myself back to him. Right, And so this is how we view it as well. When, when we have seen temptation run its full and ugly course in our life, we feel less than human and less than welcome at God's, in God's presence. And so we say, that's it. I will sell myself back. I'll do something where I'm going to make him happy again. That's what I'll do. And James says, no, look up, <laughs> look up. 
The the hymn that we sing before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's not sometime gospel truth, nor is it for the really good ones that just avoid temptation. That's for the people that absolutely 100% fell into the ditch, saw temptation run its full and ugly course, and that gospel call is for you to come back and see God, the one who made an end to all of your sin by putting Jesus in the place of judgment that you and I deserved. So when Satan tempts you to despair and wants to collapse you in on yourself, look up. Look up. He goes on and he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, people have wrestled with James's language there. Because we know that God is the one who hung sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. But you would think if James is talking about a creation illusion there, he would have said who is the creator of lights. Lights don't typically have fathers. Unless, unless. See, One of the bits of New Testament wisdom literature that James was heavily influenced by was the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in Matthew 5.14 that Jesus says what about his people? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. It's very much familial. It's very much, um, it makes sense, doesn't it? The Father of Lights. This is God. Um, this is God at work within us, and it and it carries over, doesn't it? Because there is um, there is birth language that goes on in verse eighteen of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now I'll come back to that in just a minute. James goes on at the end and says, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So some of us in the country uh, were able to see a total solar eclipse, right? Uh, There is a moment of totality. One of the places was in my parents' uh, town of Greenville, South Carolina. It was uh, a very exciting thing. Um, And there were scientists that all went to the Greenville County Zoo in Greenville, because they were going to study the animals in the zoo to see what happened when the sun went away in the middle of the day, and now all of a sudden it's dark out. And they wanted to see what the animals did, how they reacted. Well, as you would expect, it's incredibly disorienting. And James says, that disorientation of light going away and shadows and flickering, that is not the case with God at all. See, the birth that needs to happen in all of us is the new birth that Jesus spoke of in John's gospel. We must be born again. There is already deep within us everything working against us to doubt God and to have disordered desire. What we need inside of us is new birth. 
And this is what God has graciously done. Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is, this is birth language, the, sin, the seed of sin that drove deep into our souls, a debilitating doubt and disordered desire has been conquered by God, the giving God, by his own nature and by his own grace and goodness has brought forth in us new creation by the word of truth. This has been given to us by God, by the one who brought forth the heavenly lights by a word. So he brings forth believers as lights of the world of the world by the word of truth. One thing to mention, just a note in the Bible, whenever it speaks of truth, it is not just um, something that one knows, but something that one does. And so the word of truth being worked out in us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which both conveys the knowledge of God and transforms its recipients. And the last thing before some, um, some closing thoughts here. One of the things that we're going to notice in James's letter throughout the, entire, the rest of the book is James being almost incredulous that what we believe doesn't line up with what we do. James says, faith without works is dead. Now, James is not trying to run counter to justification by faith alone. James is simply saying that if you have been saved by God, it is going to show forth in your life. And he sets that up beginning here, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We were brought forth by the word of truth as first fruits of the creation. In the New Testament, first fruits represent the beginnings of God's redemption of all creation. So, James's designation of believers as first fruits not only declares them as holy, but also places them in a category of those who are already experiencing the full redemption that the rest of the creation still awaits. These people reflect the very character and nature of God to the world. And so this may be why James is deeply distressed by those who claim to have faith but do not evidence that character. But where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Because I guarantee you that you were able to identify, maybe not with the specifics but certainly with the contours of what I have experienced in my own life of when temptation shows up. And instead of doing what James had set out for us, where it would be trial would come and then there would be testing, perseverance, leading to maturity, we took the other road (laughs) of a trial comes and temptation leads to sin and leads to a people feeling dead inside. What do you do today? What do you do today? Well, first of all, if we're getting, um, if we're if we're picking up um, tools 
for people who are um, one day going to experience trials, presently enduring trials, or trying to make sense of trials. Let me say this. The greatest danger for all of us is not what's being done to us, but what might be done by us. Therefore, the first thing that we ought to do is repent of that which is going on in our hearts. And again, I'm not saying that you repent of having desire. I'm saying repent of disordered desire, desire that has found itself unhooked from the North Star of Jesus Christ, a desire that has found itself beginning um, beginning to cultivate in circumstances that are defined by a distrust and a doubt of the goodness and the generosity of God. And maybe that's too much. Maybe sometimes when life feels like it's turning on a fire hydrant in your face and you're supposed to take a drink of it all at once, maybe it's just enough for you to be able to say, Lord, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Maybe sometimes that's all we can get out. So not only do we need to repent of Um, of that which is within us, but we also need to figure out how to not be isolated from one another. I was talking with some guys um, earlier this week, and in this particular matter, we discovered that we all have deeply rooted insecurities and doubts. I said, man, it's great to finally find out that all of y'all are struggling here too. And then we said, I wish these types of conversations could happen more among God's people where we could be welcomed into the embrace of one another, figuring out that we don't have it figured out. See, how do you protect yourself from, um, from disordered desire and debilitating doubt becoming your downfall? There was a lot of D's in there, and I apologize for that. You protect yourself this way. God has given you his spirit, God has given you his word, and God has given you his people. We are not built to withstand this life in isolation. We're not. We're not. And so to be God's people, we come together because part of the ways that God gives us wisdom is not simply by um, opening up this pipeline directly to our brains, but through God's people speaking God's truth to our hearts. Some of you have come out of a season of testing in your life where instead of enduring, you have fallen. I just want you to know that today is a good day to start the rest of your life. Come and hear Jesus' call. You are welcome. There is no earning back his favor and there is no convincing him that you've got it together this time. He loves you, and you don't. You don't have it together this time. If you're in a season of testing right now, do you have people around you that can be points of grace for you? And lastly, if you are not experiencing a trial right now, it's cliche to say, get ready. But get ready. 
It may be an, it may be an annoyance like your air conditioning going out. It may be tragedy like a loved one all of a sudden dying. Maybe the loss of a job. It may be loss of health. It may be the loss of a relationship. But whatever it is, know this. God's not out to get you. He loves you and he's for you. And he's not rejoicing that there's a trial coming to you, but there is joy in heaven over what he's doing in you. And that's drawing you to himself and making you more like his son. So friends, hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are cherished. And you, even if you've had a terrible week or a terrible day, Today is a good day to start the rest of your life.